and welcome to episode 8 of the Airmic Talks podcast, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by the UK's Risk and Insurance Management Association. I am your host, Richard Kutcher, and joining me today to discuss people safety in the workplace as businesses and organisations emerge from lockdown will be Robert Tailby, Principal Casualty Risk Engineer at Chubb Risk Engineering Services. Robert's primary role at Chubb is to provide expert advice and support to the insurer's clients, brokers and underwriters on all aspects of employers and public liability risk management. For the next 15 minutes, Robert and I discuss the people safety management systems we've all seen so visibly in our everyday lives since the beginning of lockdown, the safety blind spots that have been highlighted by the pandemic and how the crisis can be used to build further resilience into our organisations going forward. So, Robert, in so many ways, the coronavirus pandemic has really brought organisations, people, safety management systems to the fore. Could you provide some examples of of where we've seen this uh, most visibly? I mean, there's so many dimensions to this in, in that COVID really is a, a people issue fundamentally, but probably the best illustration, which I've used a few times now, is just what we've seen and maybe each experienced in the supermarket, because you've got a microcosm there of every human response mm. to different aspects of the crisis. You know, you've got, uh, as you go in, you've got maybe the the person who rigidly sticks to the rules and as you move they stay rigidly two metres apart from you. They won't move until you've moved. Uh, then you've got the person who's giving you the corona stare over the top of their mask, which, uh, you know, any slight infringement and, <laughs> and they'll tut at you and and clearly, you know, make their displeasure known. And then you've got the other person who doesn't seem to be at all worried and you're standing in front of the yogurts, they'll reach around you, grab a yogurt and, and move on, uh, you know, possibly rubbing their sleeve across your nose, uh, as they do it, so you know these are these are the people aspects of it, and and as as uh, people are working in environments that were you know we didn't have that kind of fear and and difference of perception before. Now all of those people that that we just seen in the supermarket are now in our workplace with those same responses. So it becomes a real uh, challenge to make sure that everybody is on the same page, everybody has the same perception of, of risk and everybody has the same understanding of the precautions and how to adhere to them. So, yes, yeah, certainly a, a huge challenge that perhaps we've not faced in quite the same way before. I think as well, from my experience at the supermarket, you, you're absolutely right regarding kind of fellow fellow consumers and customers walking around the supermarket uh, with you and, and obviously the different attitudes that people show, masks or no masks as well. But for me, what's really striking is is the staff. You know, when you when you used to go to a supermarket pre pandemic, uh, you you just viewed staff as I say just, but you know, uh, helping helping you find items, check checking items out, um, stacking shelves. But now you you view them as uh, people who are keeping the whole shop safe, and obviously their role is fundamental to those businesses acting uh, safely and responsibly. Yeah, I think that shows you another challenge that somebody who's you know been employed in a particular role, who's been selected for a particular skill set, um, and probably fulfills their job extremely well, now suddenly has to have another set of skills. You know, in this case, sort of people skills, and also dealing with uh, the same internal conflicts them- themselves, but then trying to communicate effectively with people over whom they have sort of a, a, a complex relationship in terms of their authority. 
And you can see staff uh, in supermarkets sometimes getting, I think they're quite tired some of the time because mm. it's its so much more of a tense environment. Again, I'm sure a lot of us have experienced that. What what used to be a sort of, you know, everyday thing has now turned into kind of mission impossible almost um, as you're trying to, to follow through. And I think so, yeah, that the staff uh, themselves have, have taken on a whole new role, not just keeping the store going from a logistical and practical point of view, but being those agents of, of safety, really, uh, and, and supervision that they've not had to do before. But hats off to them, really, for those who are doing it really well. So how, how central, but that's, that's a great example of of staff really coming with the company on a journey to to make it possible to keep operating. How central is it to, to get that staff buy-in right? And is it easy to achieve? The answers to those questions are both simple and complex. It's absolutely essential to get it. It's very, very difficult to achieve if you hadn't already achieved it. And I think this is probably, you know, a key theme for this conversation is where you had these things in place before, they they, they should be serving you well now. If you didn't have them in place before, you've got quite an uphill battle or, you know, effort to, to expend right now. So... I think any organization, one of the key things is how do senior leaders in the organization communicate and talk about risk? Do they do it in a way that shows that it is, first of all, important to them as an organizational issue? And secondly, do they communicate in a way that is genuinely um, uh, compassionate or caring towards the workforce? Because I think people are very quick to see when your expressions of concern or care are insincere. Um, And if you've not created that that credibility and of sincerity in your message of safety and health is important to me as a senior business leader, then your staff will quickly, you know, have picked up on that and, and it'd be much harder to bring them along with you. So again, if you've done it before and it was in place, great. If you haven't done it before, then now you really need to start making those messages absolutely clear and credible. And perhaps that on the flip side, and again, a theme perhaps for this conversation is that gives you an opportunity here where perhaps it has been the poor relation in your organization. It gives you an opportunity to say, here we are, folks, we've got a common issue. It really does affect us all. It is a significant uh, health uh, and safety hazard. Uh, We're all at risk. So, you know, whatever we've done before, can we now all come together, work together? And um, so if you can if you can create that environment, you know, you, you're going to move forward and start to be able to succeed. But it's, it's not easy at all. And I think the other aspect of it that is incredibly difficult is because there is, you know, we are in a deluge of information. Our society is overwhelmed with information and we, we all know that half of the information or a large proportion of the information is either completely fake or misdirected. Um, So just first of all, even getting people to understand routes of transmission, what the the risk actually is and having people are so overwhelmed or some people are so overwhelmed with panic that they're going to get it or they're going to give it to a a loved one or relation that uh, it's very hard to, to get the objective message about the nature of risk really through to them uh, can be extremely difficult to to do that if you've not again if you've not created vehicles through which clear and credible communication or risk communication can happen if you've not created those before 
You mentioned uh, there, Robert, about obviously having some of these systems in place beforehand would have been a great benefit to organizations to have have been prepared for for a, a crisis of this nature. And presumably the pandemic has shined a light on those organizations who did have sufficient and robust safety procedures in place and, and those who didn't. And has that been quite obvious, do you think, as an outside observer or someone who works in this area professionally? Yeah, I think... It has been quite obvious. So the the organisations that have had strong and credible systems in place have been able to adapt. It's one of my sort of favourite things to point out in this crisis is that COVID, whilst it does, you know, is unique to us all, one way of seeing it is simply as a new workplace safety hazard. So if you already have an infrastructure of risk identification or hazard identification, risk assessment, consultation, communication and monitoring. If you already have that infrastructure in place, then albeit will be disruptive, you can drop the COVID issue into the into the top of your process and it will come out with credible answers and responses. And I have seen that work ex- extremely well in a couple of organizations that I deal with on a regular basis, where perhaps anyway, I'm reviewing or seeing their risk assessments when they're having new processes or new activities. They often come to us, obviously, to, to consult on those. And again, they've, they've been able to take their existing risk assessments, take their existing procedures, look at them and adapt them with additional precautions and control measures and integrate that into their existing working and operating procedures and practices. Again, very, very crucially with a consultation and engagement network amongst supervisory and frontline staff who, again, are used to being part of that process, who are happy to be part of that process. You know, in contrast, I think I'm not um, overly critical here, but in contrast, perhaps often it, it is one of those things where the smaller organizations just simply find it much more difficult. If safety has been more of an add-on, if it's been more of a thing we know we need to do, but we're perhaps more compliance-driven than risk-driven, then it's much more difficult to adapt because perhaps the procedures haven't been actually so well integrated. And in reality, maybe they weren't actually what everyone was doing, even though they were what was written down. So you are immediately faced with the challenge that what you think you were doing wasn't actually what you were doing anyway. So to adapt that gives you a double layer of change to, to go through. So obviously a wide, a wide range there in the kind of the preparedness of organizations. But even those organizations who were well prepared uh, for uh, this crisis or a similar crisis would obviously have had blind spots. No one can obviously be 100% prepared for anything like this. Where, where have you, has this crisis highlighted uh, particular blind spots, you think, in organizations, people, safety management systems or, or other safety management systems? I think probably the whole occupational health piece, which generally, perhaps at least I'm talking perhaps a little bit parochially here in terms of particularly a UK phenomenon, is that our approach to occupational health isn't as sophisticated as some other countries around the world and our appreciation and integration of occupational health into the way we do things is not very well developed in comparison to some other nations. So the idea of handling health information, of asking 
employees for health information, for asking them to credibly uh, and honestly declare. Uh, again, helping employees believe that the information is being handled uh, confidentially, that people are not going to be uh, unfairly discriminated against because of health information they've provided. Even the idea of maybe having your temperature checked on the way into a workplace, which we've seen some people do. These things related to health, I think a lot of organizations have struggled. And even the the well-developed and more sophisticated organizations early on were very, very cautious with the whole area of health and health declarations. So I think that's one key area where I hope perhaps the crisis will see us advance a little bit, um, you know, as a nation in seeing the, the value and importance of occupational health in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, looking forward then, do you hope that the the argument for substantial planning and resilience in anticipation of serious events such as pandemics, but not limited to, do you hope then that that case will have been made stronger as a result? Again, yeah, absolutely. I, I think there are a couple of dimensions to this. Probably the first one is that generally in risk and in health and safety, a lot of the time things seem very remote and theoretical. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges with health and safety is success is always difficult to measure because you're measuring the absence of something rather than the presence of something. Mm -hmm. And you're also trying to uh, create a credible uh, perception of risk without creating fear. And I think one of the things that this crisis, this situation hopefully has allowed us to do is to show or give us more access perhaps to senior leaders and to the boardroom and, and hopefully our credibility as risk advisors, you know, we can hopefully be able to capitalize on it because I think those senior leaders have been coming to us more readily and more frequently and we can hopefully have better access as long as we continue to articulate it really well. And that's, again, a key thing is are we articulating risk really well uh, and are we articulating it in uh, a way that is clearly setting out what the, the, the threats actually are? So uh, I think a famous phrase we've heard used quite a lot uh, during the last few months is don't waste a good crisis. Yes. Um, is there an opportunity for risk professionals, uh, do you think, to use this crisis to, to kind of further their case internally to build resilience into their, into their organizations where previously they may have been pushed back because of budget constraints or, or it not being a priority? Do you think this should strengthen that, that case? Yeah, and I think the key word you've just used there, which is the one that, that I'm starting to try and use, is resilience. Um, mm. I think we've maybe focused perhaps on crystal ball gazing, uh, perhaps as a, as a risk mitigation strategy in terms of can we think of every single different thing that might go wrong and plan for it. And I think what COVID has shown us is even the best planning, there are variables that we can't plan for, you know, the exact nature of the virus here, the exact nature of the way it's transmitted, the exact profile of the health effects. I don't think anybody had specifically planned for any of those. But what we can develop and what we should develop and what I would want to use and, and, and what I'll try to be communicate to organizations is this idea of resilience. And I come right back to, you know, what I was trying to say at the beginning about what I mean by resilience is having an effective risk, health and safety management system, having the process in place with all the relevant stages. Uh, you know, you look at the key sort of risk management standards for me, that's I say 45,001 now, you know, plan, do, check, act, leadership at the centre, 
but then a process which has adequate and proper professional advice that's that's taken seriously, that has a good process and approach to risk assessment and development of control measures, a good process that has consultation and engagement with those people who are going to have to implement risk mitigation measures, proper um, arrangements for monitoring, supervision and control, and a proper review and revision process that closes that, you know, quality improvement loop. And I think resilience needs to have that that in place, that structure in place, so that whatever comes at you, you've got a response mechanism. And in some ways, it's investing in that resilience should actually reduce the amount of time, perhaps, that you need to spend in even scenario, well, maybe scenario testing, but in the, the crystal ball gazing part of it is taken away because you've built a system that should be able to respond to almost any threat that's thrown at you, as long as you know that's within the, the normal bounds of what's genuinely foreseeable great well robert it's been a pleasure having you on to airmit talks and we'll hope to have you on again later on in the year thank you very much thanks very much richard well thank you to robert telby and chubb for joining me on this latest edition of airmit talks if you are enjoying the series then please do remember to subscribe on apple podcasts spotify castbox or wherever you get your podcasts from And please do share and comment on the Airmic Talks posts on LinkedIn to spread the word further about the podcast. Stay well and see you next time.